This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats. And I have been eating at some old favorites, which just reopened again. And, you know, I think I mentioned to you recently, eating in restaurants, and I've been eating outside. It may be getting a little too nippy to do that. But these restaurants and their staff, they have truly suffered. I mean, everyone has suffered. We have actors coming on our show who were telling us they didn't work for almost two years. And I feel that if we can go out, it can be anything, any place. It doesn't have to be top of the line, but we should. And we should tip because there has been no money and a lot of businesses have been hurt. A lot of our favorites shut down for a long time and now just open again. So recently I went over to a terrific restaurant called Elio's, which many of you are familiar with. 1621 2nd Avenue on 84th Street. It was always, even though it's local, meaning the Upper East Side, it was a very popular restaurant, and the bar was always packed with um, a lot of young people who would hang out. It was like family almost. The bartender knows everyone. The waiters have been there forever, and we absolutely loved it. And I said whenever I would go there, I'd see Tom Selleck sitting in his corner table with someone who looked very official, his manager, his agent, his friend, and very low-key eating his pasta and, you know, not being bothered by anyone. That's the kind of place it was. You could be the most famous or a normal person, and everyone is very happy to be there. What I love about Ilios is the chicken scarpiella. I'm telling you, it is the best in New York. Absolutely delicious. And then at the end of the meal, I call them mommy cookies. They're these little round cookies, which when I was a kid, every Friday my mother would bake, and she would make these little round butter cookies, paper thin. And then when I started going to Elio's, Those cookies would appear on a plate near the end. It was like a message from my mother saying, it's okay. You know, I'm still around watching you devour these cookies. But it's a restaurant I love, and they have a very nice outside. Let's hope it doesn't get too cold to eat outside. And another neighborhood restaurant, which has a lot of delicious food, but their veal chop, if you eat meat, is quite spectacular. Nicola's at 46 East 84th Street. And again, it's part of a neighborhood, but it's a destination. In fact, I see a lot of broadcast people in there, and I've even seen our owner, John Casamitidis, who I've seen him at Nicola's, and a lot of Fresco, a terrific restaurant on Madison Avenue, in the 50s, owned by the Scotto family. So delicious. The gorgonzola potato chips, all the good things, and it's a family. And we love to be in places like that. And then if you're out in the Hamptons, this is a good time to go because it's not as crazy as usual. A French bakery and restaurant opened on Montauk Highway in Bridgehampton with unbelievable breads that they make every day, handmade pastries, pizza, pasta, delicious seafood, Long Island oysters, a full bar. And they do, like in France, these homemade baguettes with fromage 
and jabon ham and cheese. They do it with a bacon and egg. And they have something which I've never had before. Maybe you guys have. Brie, but the kind of soft melting brie cheese with homemade preserves on a homemade baguette. Not too bad. Pretty delicious. And they have a pork dish if you eat that. That's one of the best things I've ever had. So, and they have outdoor space too. And favorite, Tudo El Giorno. It's owned by the Donna Karen family, her daughter and the daughter's husband. They're in Southampton on Nugent Street. And they do dinner every night from 5 o'clock, lunch only on the weekends. And they also have one I love on Main Street in Sag Harbor. Lunch Thursday through Sunday from noon to 3. And they have really, if you want to splurge, I don't mean money-wise. It's not cheap, but it's, you know, if you do look at calories, they're rigatoni with a fresh tomatoes, veal, beef, spicy sausage, peas, a touch of cream is very good. And they have a catch of the day, a fresh fish baked in parchment paper with black olives, capers, cherry tomatoes. Really, really good. And they have great outdoor dining options at all locations. So you're not going to go hungry listening to The Joan Hamburg Show. More coming up. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. I've got a real treat for you today. Two fabulous guests, Henry Winkler and Lynn Oliver. And you know, it's interesting. My producer engineer and I were talking about um, Mr. Winkler earlier on, and he said, you know, I can't believe that those books, and he was familiar with the books, were all written with Henry Winkler. I said, a Renaissance man. Nothing but the best guests do we get. And Lynn Oliver, who describes her childhood where she and her sister had pink and green hair because their mom constantly dressed them alike, and they hated it. <laughs> so they both come a long, interesting way to celebrate a brand new book from that duo, Henry Winkler and Lynn Oliver, Alien Superstar, Hollywood versus the Galaxy. And I know it's a, well, a children's book, sort of middle school book, but I'm telling you, it's for everyone. It's funny as can be. It's a great read. And of course, I sat up the other night thinking, this is for my granddaughter, but there I am laughing and glued to it and feeling if I were a kid, I would really feel good if I read this book because I wouldn't feel like I was alone or I was different or I couldn't do anything. I would start to value the things that make each person special. So congratulations. Thank guys. you. It's really great. And Lynn, we'll start with you. Just like Henry, who sort of knew what he wanted to do from the time he was a kid, you really knew you wanted to tell stories and be a writer from the time you were a kid. Absolutely. That's, it's one of my earliest memories that I always wanted to be a writer. In fact, I, I tell the story that when I was little, literally like two years old, I would go up and down our block in Burbank where I was raised and knock on people's doors and say, do you want to know what happened at our house last night? So my <laughs> my parents were not thrilled with that behavior. <laughs> I'm there, sure there were no. When you live with a writer, even if the writer is two years old, there are no secrets. Right, and and Henry, you describe your childhood. You said, which I loved. You grew up with a high level of low self esteem, and that <laughs> academics were not your strong suit in those years. No, I I literally am. Uh... I'm clocked in at in the bottom 3% academically in America. <laughs> but you stepped over that 3%. Do you know why? I, what, what, what we write about is that how you learn has nothing to do with what you can achieve. 
with uh, how brilliant you are. Yeah, but it's sometimes a hard journey to get to that point. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And But I think sometimes that hard journey literally um, prepares you for the battle in life. Yeah, well, you're making a good point, but when you were just a kid, it was eighth grade, I think I read, you were in a high school play, and instead of going into the family lumber business, which the parents dreamed of, you sort of knew that this was the path you were going to take. It is really true, and here it is. When you know what you want without ambivalence, you just keep walking toward your dream. And eventually you get there, and here I am with Lynn. This is our our 37th novel together, and I never in a million years thought I could be part of a team that would write one. Right, let alone all, and so successful. But then how did you and Lynn in different worlds come together? How did you even know that you were going to do this? Very simply, there was a lull in my acting career. Uh, after a mutual Fonz? friend, uh, after the Fonz, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I, I literally thought I was going to beat the system, the, that the Fonz was so popular, so big, I was going to go from mountaintop to mountaintop. And I found myself sliding right into the valley. Mm. And a, fr- a mutual friend suggested I write books about my dyslexia. And I said, I can't do that. He said, I'm going to introduce you to my good friend, Lynn Oliver, who is the, the who started the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators that now have like 37,000 members around the world. Oh. And we had lunch and we hatched Hank Zipser to begin with. And here we are. Right. All these, all these books later, and for both of you, enormously successful, which, you know, it's not so easy in the world of books. Well, it's been, it's, it's been a, a really satisfying journey because we hope that what we write about, I was, I was so thrilled, Joan, to hear your introduction where you talked about how in reading Alien Superstar, what, what the thought that occurred to you was that how important it is to value our differences and to know that each person is different and unique. And so that's, that's what we write about. That's the underlying theme of, even though we write comedy and entertainment, that's the underlying theme of everything we write about. So it's been satisfying not only to have the book so commercially successful, but to know that they're reaching an audience of kids who need to hear that message. Right. And especially Henry, who describes really having a tough struggle academically in school, although he found his way, he was gifted as an actor. But Henry, you were a grown-up before they understood that you weren't a terrible student. You suffered from dyslexia, and it right. just hadn't been recognized. Right. Uh, I'm When I married Stacy, uh, uh, Jed, my oldest, uh, my stepson, came with the marriage, a wonderful gift. And we had him tested in the third grade. And everything they said to him was true about me. And it was at 31, I realized I wasn't stupid, that I literally had something with a name. And then Lynn and I created um, a character together over bad fish in a restaurant um, Mm. that would embody that little boy's journey. And then out of that came Ghost Buddy, and then out of that came uh, the alien superstar. And this is the, the third in a trilogy. But I like to say that we write our books, so they're fun to read, all three of them, but this you could also read as a standalone, and uh, it would be satisfying. Yeah, absolutely. And for the parent as well as for the child. Because yeah. it reinforces those lessons that sometimes parents, in their zeal to have successful children, forget. So I was really impressed with all of that. 
Thank you. And, of course, Henry, in, in your journey, you talk about your family, too. And even though I had heard the story about your dad leaving to come to America, I never get tired of hearing that story. The melted chocolate and the jewelry, it's right. still so an extraordinary in, story. My father got a six-week visa to come to America to uh, explore his business, which was importing and exporting wood. Uh, as they left Germany, he took his wife, um, my, my mother's jewelry, and my, my grandmother's jewelry, bought a box of chocolate, melted down the chocolate, and then poured it over the jewelry, let it harden. So when the Nazis said, are you taking anything of value out of the country? He said, no, open all my bags. There's nothing. And under his arm was this box of chocolate. He then pawned the jewelry when he got to New York. That allowed him to start a new life here. And then he was able to buy the jewelry back. And on my bar mitzvah, I got my great-grandfather's pocket watch that came out of Germany encased in chocolate. Unbelievable. You know, I never get tired of that story because Thank you. it's it's all about ingenuity, too. Who, th who would it think is. of such a thing? I'm such, you know, so pessimistic sometimes. I would think that the Nazis would say, oh, that looks good. Let's have a piece. <laughs> Thank God they didn't. They were on a diet. <laughs> you, you, they lucked out in that particular group. But both Henry and Lynn, everyone has turning points in life. And Henry, you started working fairly early. And then when the Fonz came about, you know, who expected that would be such a big deal? I still remember giving my husband a birthday party of a high school prom because he said he never went to his own prom. And almost oh. all the guests came like you. They were all oh wearing God, leather jackets. You know, that's all the stuff. Great. It was such a power force then. And it took a while for it to catch on. But once it caught, that was yes, it. Yes, really. Yeah. And, and Lynn and I, what we did was, as we travel around the, the world, really, and the country, and go into classrooms and talk to the children, read to the children, every, the kids are fascinated by Hollywood. And what is it? And they're and they're fascinated by outer space, and so we took the two and we put them together in this book, Alien Superstar, Hollywood versus the Galaxy, and then Lynn has produced and written um, uh, hundreds of episodes of television. I've been on television, so we wrote what we knew, and the combination has been magical. What you do is you think about what, what where children are already interested. And as Henry said, all kids are fascinated with space and space creatures. And most kids are fascinated with celebrity, with what it's really like to be uh, a Hollywood superstar. So when we put those two ideas together, we created the story of an alien kid who's from a red dwarf planet out in the universe who has to flee his repressive government. And he gets into a rocket ship that's built by his engineer grandmother, Grandma Wrinkle, and goes <laughs> to the only place in the universe that feels safe, which is Earth. And his spaceship lands on the back lot of Universal Studios, where the tour is going on. And so when he disembarks from his spaceship as an alien, he fits right in because everybody else who's walking around is dressed as a character. So it's the story of his life on Earth as an alien, in uh, hidden in plain sight. Right, a and becoming sort of a hero in the world of media. Yeah. Which is fascinating. But, Lynn, when, you know, a lot of kids, everyone, like where my kids grew up, they all want to be actors, writers, you know, easier said than done. So even though you were telling stories from the time you were a wee child, what was the break where someone said this kid can really or this young woman can really write and took your first book? What was that well, process? It's kind of, you know, it's kind of like Henry, whose parents, you know, wanted him to be in the family business. Right. 
you know, my parents, my father was a lawyer and my mother was a doctor. So the fact that they had a child who wanted to be a writer with an uncertain future, and as my father pointed out to me repeatedly, a job with no health insurance, (laughs) 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 that was very alarming to them. So it took a lot of pers- it took a lot of persistence to convince him that I was willing to take the health insurance risk in order to try and succeed in my dream, which was to which was to be a writer. And so I I persisted. Something we talk to kids about is if there's something you want to do, you have to practice. You have to practice to get good at it. It doesn't just happen. So I wrote all through grammar school. I was editor of my high school paper. I was editor of my college paper. I won a journalism contest. And then I won a comedy writing contest to to work in Hollywood writing sitcoms. So I persisted all those years practicing to to try and achieve the skill to succeed. So I I guess the the turning point for me was was when I got to work at Universal Studios as a a writer-producer. That sort of established me in my own eyes, and certainly in my father's eyes, because it came with health insurance. Exactly. (laughs) The things that everyone cared about, right? That's right. That's right. So, and then Henry, you, after the Fonz, which was a huge run, and life-changing. Life-changing. And like a lot of my pals who are actors who have been on TV or sitcoms or stuff, It was always the same story. I got to get rid of this character now or I'm not going to get work again. And what did it take for you to jump over the Fonz, which was so good to you, to the next step? Well, first of all, not denying that I I had this wonderful experience playing Fonzie on Happy Days. But what I had to do then was to take another direction and you have to reinvent yourself. So part of my compensation for Fonz was to be able to produce a show if ABC liked it, if I brought them a show they liked. And thank God the first show we brought them was uh, MacGyver. Yeah, which was a big deal. Uh, and it turned out to uh, to work. And then I started to direct a little bit. And then in 1991, uh, Happy Days finished in 1983. In 1991, I started to get acting roles that were not Fonz-like. And then in 2002, I met Lynn and and we um, started writing together. And then all of a sudden, I was a fledgling um, writer of children's books. Right. Uh, A turnaround. And now, Barry, a movie, you're in a Wes Anderson movie. Yes, it comes out on the 22nd. It's called The French Dispatch. And um, I I just want to say it is an honor that I got to be, that I got the call to be in a Wes Anderson movie. I get that totally. You know, I was standing on on the set and he said, Henry, and I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's going to give me a direction now. I'm going to be directed (laughs) by Wes Anderson. And he said, could you move a millimeter to the left? And I said, yes, I can. Here I go. Oh, it's so funny. I have a pal, Bob Balaban, who... Oh, my God. He's my brother. He's my brother in the movie. He he said that because we were just talking about you guys coming on with Alien Superstar and he said, and I had mentioned your name. He said, you know, I just did a movie with him. And that was the Wes Anderson movie, which yeah. is, you know, like I worship Wes Anderson too. Just knowing that you were in that movie is such a big deal. The guy's such a genius. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, to watch him. You know, there are no stand-ins. So you do all of that. You stand there for two or three hours while he is setting up the shot until it is perfect for him. And I whispered to Bob. I said, Bob, I have an idea for Wes. Should I tell him? And Bob whooped his head around and said, no. And so I was really quiet then for the rest of the show. <laughs> but uh, we're, uh, Lynn and I are not quiet 
when we're writing uh, Alien Superstar. Together or separate? Together. Now, because of the pandemic, we had to do some of it on the Zoom. But for years, uh, we were in Lynn's office. Uh, I sit across from her, uh, and we argue over every word. So we we discuss every word, Henry. Right. We discuss every word vigorously. And then, <laughs> does someone say okay and gives in? Both. We. I, I literally sometimes. Uh, Lynn said, you know what, I hear it this way, or I no, 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 I really need it to, I, I need to use this word here, I think this is the right word, and sometimes I say the same thing, I, no, 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 I, I really need to hear the rhythm uh, of the way the sentence goes, and uh, so we both give it. And Henry, in addition to all these books and the brand new one we're celebrating, Alien Superstar, Hollywood versus the Galaxy, You've got TV stuff. You've got all kinds of things in the mill. Well, last night at 10 o'clock, I finished um, a scene on Barry, the, the season three. Unbelievable. I'm telling you, it's like uh, it, it, God reached down and said, Henry, this is going to be a great time for you. <clears throat> but it's been a great time for a long time, and may it continue. Thank you. And we just had a granddaughter. Oh, what's so exciting. Oh, my God. Frances Joan is eight days old. Wow. And where where does Frances Joan live? Is she an L.A. granddaughter? All of our children. We now have six grandchildren. Lynn has four, three. And three. actors, writers in the mix? I don't know. You know what? I think maybe, uh, yes, Gus the um my my three year old grandson is a, just a born performer. It is totally natural. How great! And what about your kids, Lynn? Actors, I have, writers. I have three sons. Only one is a writer. Uh-huh. One one is uh, in real estate and urban planning, and one is in sports. And then I have three grandchildren. It's too young to know what they are, but. I'm happy to report that I'm coming to New York in two weeks, and I'm taking my eight-year-old granddaughter to her very first Broadway play. Oh, what are you she taking loves her to? Broadway, and so we are creating this memory together, and I'm so grateful for that. What are you taking her to see? Well, I gave her a choice, and she chose, of course, Hamilton because she of can course. rap. All the lyrics. Oh, you're kidding. All about Lafayette and people I'm sure she's never heard of. She can do it word for word for the entire three-hour production. Unbelievable. And when I saw Hamilton, I literally had to listen to the score before I went over and over again, before I could make sense of it. So God bless that child. (laughs) That's exactly right. She's at the moment, as we're speaking, shopping for a new dress and Fish oh, stockings to wear to her first Broadway. What place. else? Have a yeah. wonderful <laughs> trip to New York, Henry. Loved Thank you. catching up with you and both Always of you. Always a pleasure, Joan. Love the book. Thank and the you. book is available in all the bookstores, everywhere you buy books. Alien Superstar, Hollywood versus the Galaxy. Two great people with wonderful stories. Henry Winkler, Lynn Oliver. Enjoy everything. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. everyone. I'm really excited because we are celebrating Broadway, something we do often. And Broadway is back. You cannot imagine if you haven't been there yet, the lines that are waiting to see everything and the enthusiasm of the people in the theaters. It's such a thrill. And two of our best, biggest shows are celebrating right along. Michael James Scott, the genie in Aladdin. He is back at the New Amsterdam Theater. Adrian Walker, now in the Lion King at the Minskov Theater. They are back. These are Disney's greats. 
and you guys are going to love going to the theater because I'll tell you, Disney is doing a great job. If anyone changes plans, doesn't matter. Disney says, come on, exchange your tickets if you need it. Free of charge, we'll pay all Ticketmaster fees. And then, of course, you're going to see two of Broadway's best celebrating in their own worlds. So, Michael and Adrian, I know it's the same question we all ask, but you, like so many of us, were so-called furloughed for long periods of time. And now there you are back to full houses and the joy of an audience drinking in the magic of theater. So what did it feel on the first opening night again? It was explosive. I, I could not have imagined a better experience. And I did think about it quite a lot. What will it be like to, to get back on stage again? What will, will the audience be like? What will that first performance be like? And it was incredible. Didi Manye opens her mouth to sing, nah, and the entire audience exploded. And it was like that for the rest of the show. And the performances are still that exciting. And we've been up and running now for five weeks. Yeah, it's fantastic. And the audiences, I was also curious if there would be a lot of people. How many people are going to show up? The audiences have been packed. So it just feels like we not only took off, took up where we left off last March, but that it's even more thrilling and more exciting than I ever could have imagined. And you know what's so interesting? And I'm talking, by the way, that's Adrian Walker, who's starring as Nala in The Lion King, and Michael James Scott, the genie in Aladdin. You yeah. know, New, New Yorkers love to complain, right? We complain about traffic. We complain <laughs> about real estate. But when I was at the theater the other night, recently, the lines were around the block of people waiting to get in. It was cold. No one. They were so excited. I couldn't believe it myself. And they, you know, had to go through the vaccine approval, the whole bit. Not one complaint. Happy as locks to be back where they belong. And, Michael, did you have the same with Aladdin, the opening night again experience? Like, who was going to be there? Or am I going to be up to myself again? I haven't done it in so long. What happened? Oh, my gosh. Yes. No, I mean, just as you're saying, I think that it was, that's exactly right. The energy, uh, it, it's just unlike anything else. This is, a, this is at a historic time for Broadway to be reopening. This means so much to, obviously, New York City, but also to the country and to the world to see that we, this Broadway community is back and what that does for our whole community and how that infiltrates throughout the world, right? And so for me, I am so, I, I get to have the amazing fortune to stand on the stage and the curtain drops and there I am. You see the genie, first thing you see, and it's just the genie in a spotlight and addressing the audience. And that moment I had dreamt about for all these months, uh, to our return of like, what would that be like for for people? And I tell you, it is it it did not disappoint <laughs> because it was it was just unlike a, a feeling a feeling like the part of my soul was back um, with with just having having theater in my life again, having Broadway, having that 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 intimacy that is live theater and not sitting on my couch watching TV. So to be able to have that experience, it, it's just unlike anything else that you can imagine. And people are hungry for it, and people are ready for it. So I, I'm, I, I, I get excited about that moment as I'm walking to the theater every day. I, I, like, I'm, I anticipate that moment every night as I'm walking to the theater. Which, which is absolutely incredible. And the, the other feeling that as someone watching shows is that, we're not going to take it for granted again. You know, this mm. is magic, and it belongs to us, and it's the heart of the city. And both of you, and if you've just joined us, Michael James Scott, the genie in Aladdin at the New Amsterdam Theater, Adrian Walker, the Lion King at the Minskoff Theater, and both of our stars have been in major Broadway productions, traveled everywhere with theater, and both of them, started as kids. Michael, you were 
four years old growing up in Florida and you yeah. were already doing commercials. Like how, how did your family even know to do that? You weren't like in the middle of New York city where, you know, sort of every kid wants to be a model or an actor, or at least their parents want them when they're little. So <laughs> how did your family yes. say this kid has got it? Let's do something. Well, I, Joan, I, I wanted to sing and dance since I was little. My mom said I sang before I spoke. So I have been doing, like, this. I've been wanting to just entertain since I was a little kid. I say it all the time. I did it in grocery stores, libraries where you're supposed to be silent. I was singing instead of being silent reading books. I'm, like, humming tunes in the library. <laughs> and for me, it was just this thing. I, I had, I called them angels. These, you know, my uh, the teachers, people who, um, to me, teachers are angels and uh, superheroes. Um, and those, they, they saw something special in me and they literally contacted my parents and said, can we help? There is something, there's something special about your child. <laughs> we can't get him to shut up. <laughs> he just wants right. to train and dance. What can we, like, can we help? And they literally would get me. I got involved with, uh, you know, children performing uh, performance groups, and then uh, ultimately commercials and TV down in in Orlando, Florida. Um, and my mom, I, I say this all the time. You know, I had parents who just simply said yes. They had no idea. They would not show parents. They had no idea what to do. But they just sort of like we kind of found our way. Um, and, you know, really relied on the community. I come from a community who really believed in young artists and really um, invested in young artists. And for me, it wasn't about the color of my skin. It wasn't about, you know, uh, the income bracket that my family was in. It was literally about the wonderment in a child's eyes and seeing that that there was something that was drawing me to what it, to, to this idea of, performing and to the arts. And that for me, uh, as I say it all the time, I am the product of a community that really cared about the arts and we just made our way. We asked questions, we did everything we could to find out the resources that were around us to figure out how we do this. My parents, I was actually born in Baltimore, Maryland. They wanted to get their, their um, and we lived in the inner city of Baltimore and, and we, my, I say, you know, a lot, my parents just wanted to get their boys out of the inner city and didn't want exactly. them to be another black male statistic, to be honest with you. And, and instead, they moved us to Orlando, Florida, into the suburbs, <laughs> um, where, where we figured out, they tried to figure out what to do to give their boys and sacrifice a better life to make, it, to make something different for their but that, that their story would be different from what theirs was growing up. And in the beginning... Did they find that? Was it different, or did it take an adjustment? Um, it, they, they, it, 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 they found it from the very beginning, because truly, within the first six months of us moving down, both my brother and I were a part of, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was on a different path with, like, sports and um, that kind of a thing, and, uh, and then ultimately the culinary arts industry. But then for me, it was all of it was it was all it was it was performing. It was being in front of in front of people, in front of the camera, in front of in front of a live audience. So it happened pretty fast, um, and 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 it was kind of incredible what what happened when when they put them their boys into an environment um, that just really said yes. And, nurture and, them. and really try to make something happen for, uh, you know, young artists, young, young, young kids who had a little uh, sparkle in their eyes with, with, with what it was that they were interested in. Right. And Adrian, you, you also didn't grow up in New York City. You're an actor and a vocalist, as I remember. You were um, brought up in Atlanta in a community outside of Atlanta, and you started singing mm -hmm. too as a kid. It started in church. You thought opera was going to be the future, and then life yeah. has a way of taking you by the hand, and <laughs> it led you to something different. 
Absolutely. Life will always surprise you. You know, you, I'm sure you're familiar with that saying, you know, uh, we plan and God laughs. Exactly. And, and that has been my life. Um, I had a really supportive upbringing when it comes to what I wanted to do and trying to figure out what I, how, how I wanted to live my life. And I grew up a pretty shy kid. So singing, I love to sing, but singing in public was never like on the list. Uh, and uh, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do in high school. And my mom, she said to me, Adrian, what do you do all the time? And I looked at her, I was like, I, I don't know. And then she just gave me this look like, you know what you do all the time. And I said, sing. And she said, yeah, why don't you, why don't you pursue that? See, see what happens from that. And uh, that's what kind of led me to classical voice. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do this opera thing. And, and I, I went to grad school in Chicago, because that's what you do when you're studying classical voice. And about a year in, I realized that it wasn't for me. And I did finish my degree, but I finished uh, with the, the mindset that I was going to do something else. And that was musical theater. And uh, I can't even believe where I am today because I started so late. And you hear that, you Wait, know, you what do you do... mean you started so late? How old? Well, I, I didn't do my first musical theater production until I graduated from grad school. So I was 24, Well, you know, and that's kind of late for theater, you know. No. Right. You hear a lot of stories of people starting out as kids and going to theater programs and doing summer stock and going to a performing arts college and, and just knowing what they're going to do and, and honing those skills. And I honed my skills in audition rooms. <laughs> I went to my first dance call in men's gym shorts and a t-shirt. You know, I had no clue what I was doing and uh, I figured it out along the way. And you started getting work early. I mean, even mm -hmm. though to you it's late, you started working and getting real, real parts, real roles. And mm -hmm. you, Michael had talked about the fact that his parents, because they were bringing up kids of color, wanted them out of that inner city environment. Did you find that being a young woman of color was more difficult? Have you seen it change to the pandemic and all that's been going on in this country? have any impact upon your world, the theater world? What I hope to see and what I'm starting to see is that um, that casting can open up with, with more than just color. Um, and it's been my experience that when I go in for a part, that sometimes they're just trying to fill certain quotas to make sure that the stage doesn't look lily white. And, um, what I'm starting to see now that people have brought more voice to that is that the stages are going to have a, a true representation of what the country really looks like, that there's a lot of different uh, diversity. There's, there's diversity in not just race, but in ability and size and age. And I just hope that now people are more aware of that, that we'll start to see that on the stage as well. And I hope that we start to see it in the writing and and that it's not just, oh, let's fill a quota because we'd want to be politically right. correct, but that it's actually a part of the art and that we start telling stories that um, that encompass all of us. You know, recently over the break, um, we watched a lot of a lot of TV and film. And one of them was uh, Lord of the Rings. We, <laughs> we decided to watch Lord of the Rings. Right. And what struck me by watching it is that this is a film of complete fantasy, but every single person in the cast presented as white. And that's what we need to change. And it's changing, and you're an activist, and because of you and people like you, your voice is out there, and you're reaching out, too, to actors, young actors who are coming along. You have podcasts. Both of you are doing TV, too. I don't know how you have time to do anything with all that's going on. But it makes a difference in the world. Your voices are heard further than on the stage. And that's something really special. So do you, is, are you both doing TV with, like you, I've never watched more TV in my life. You know, the word streaming <laughs> is like the first word that a baby says now. It's a, it's a, whole, a whole different time. 
So what, like Michael, what a TV are you doing now? If you'd have any time at all along with the genie. Yeah. So I, I'm actually, I just shot, um, a movie for um, a, a, a Hallmark Christmas movie, actually, um, oh. which was kind of crazy uh, during uh, as we were as we were getting reopened. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of insane. I was literally going back and forth um, with shooting, um, but uh, I just shot um, a movie for 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 Hallmark. It will be out this Christmas, which is Great. also insane. How fast that is. Um, but yes, I've been very blessed to be able to get to, to you know, do TV and film and be, be a, also be a part of that. It's you know the wonderful thing is I, the, the team is so lovely to um, they you know obviously get when those opportunities come up and things. There's always so wonderful to work that out with uh, um, with my team and sort of, and figure out how to make it work because it's just it's such a wonderful opportunity and. When we can make it happen, uh, we it, it happens, <laughs> and so they have they've always been so supportive about that, and uh, it's nice to be able to do something you know different exactly. different as well. I mean, my my love is, is of course the stage and and Broadway. There's just something so incredible about it, but there is there's also something really awesome and so wonderful about TV and film because of the reach. That it can go know, right, amazing. and what mm-hmm. what it what what it what it can do for it, it's how many people you can reach with just one sitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And Adrian, you're doing some. You're right. Did I read? Well, I actually haven't. I haven't had the opportunity to do TV yet. I did get a chance to film my first independent film this summer, and uh, that was really exciting. And I learned so much because the medium is just so different from live theater. There's a lot of technical work that you have to be conscious of. And for me, I would just say, you know, Joan, you spoke to, you know, how do you have time, you know, or um, are you sure you even want to do other other things like this? And it's kind of what Michael said. It's just, it's so exciting to create Mm -hmm. that I will take any opportunity. You know, if someone wants me to do a reading or a workshop and I have to juggle my yeah, I want to create. I want to become someone new. It's it's fun. I can disappear and I can challenge myself. So I always say yes when I can. Yes, yeah, let's do it. Let's work it out. Let's see if we can do it. Well, uh, sometimes in the midst of it, I'm like, oh no, you know, this might have been too much. But um, but you I, do I, it. I try to say yes. Yeah, you yeah. do it, and it's it's your gifts, both of you, to us. We're celebrating two of the great shows, the Disney shows, back on Broadway. You can celebrate with Michael James Scott, the genie in Aladdin, right at the new Amsterdam Theater, Adrian Walker, who plays Nala and the Lion King at the Minskov Theater. And they're all near each other, and they're all saying welcome. So if you're going to celebrate the heart of New York and really understand that New York is back, take yourself to the theater and enjoy. Both of you, thank you so much. We'll see you soon, and we look forward to talking to you again. All the best. Thank you, so Joan. Joan. It's lovely to talk to the legend that is Miss Joan, as we know as well. So <laughs> thank you. I thank you, guys, and we all love theater with a passion. And I am Joan Hamburg. You're listening to WABC. Much more to come. Stay tuned. The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Ask Joan. You know, it, it, it's so interesting, the different questions that we get. But now that the leaves, even in our own backyard, are changing or have changed, people ask me about getaways. Well, you know, I love Greenport, Long Island. The town has changed a lot, but changed in a good way. It's a perfect fall getaway. It's a charming town, apple picking, pumpkin picking, wine tasting. It's got it all. It was named one of the most charming small towns in New York. And I think it's something you're going to like. And there are vineyards. Do you know there are over 35 wineries open right there? So it's a great, it's not going to really do you in to get there. 
It's like a two-hour drive, but the area is so much fun. They have a seaport museum, which you're going to really enjoy. They have a saltwater aquarium, the carousel house right near the waterfront, which is fun. And one of my favorite markets is the Little Creek Oyster Farm and Market, 140-year-old old bait and tackle shop on the waterfront, freshly farmed oysters, local beer and wine, all seating is outside. It's open Wednesday to Sunday. And vineyards galore. We used to take our bikes. Well, now my complaining knees say, don't do it. But we would take a bike from the where we live in the Hamptons, take the ferry and go over. And we check out Bedell Vineyard, which is so much fun. And it's open daily from 11 to 5, 11 to 6 on the weekends. And they have delicious wine. They offer food and wine tastings. Macari Vineyards in Mattituck. You do need to book in advance, but it's right on the sound. So it's beautiful. And Rose Hill Vineyards, terrific on weekends. And Krupupski Farm, K-R-U-P-S-K-I, in Peconic. And this, bring the kids, bring your boyfriend, your girlfriend. They have hayrides, flowers, and they have pumpkin-favored cheese. It's a charming farmer's market, something you're really going to like. And also, a place that I like is the Conta Costa Vineyard at 825 North Road in Greenport. So you get these wines, you get little snacks, you get to breathe great air, and it's a lovely day, I promise you. And now the clock says, enough already. You're coming up to the three o'clock, and you and I will do this again. Join me every Sunday at two, or make sure you check out our podcast. We podcast our Sunday show. We have another podcast called Let Me Tell You, And we've got a lot of stories that I know you're going to love. Enjoy the rest of Sunday. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC.